Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for insightful analysis and enlightening discussions. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for joining us on one of the 42 radio stations, iTunes, YouTube, and the show website, CREshow.com. Well, today we have a very interesting and valuable show for you. We're going to discuss successful environmental strategies. You know, this can be good for anyone related to commercial real estate. I don't care if you're a small investor investing $5,000 through crowdfunding in a commercial real estate deal or if you're a bit large developer. And, of course, if you're any type of vendor to the business, appraiser, architect, broker, lender, knowing about environmental issues can be very key to both save money, make money, and keep you out of environmental hot water. We have an incredible uh, panel here today. Please welcome Robert Bronner. He's owner of One Consulting Group, an environmental uh, consultant engineer, right? Yeah, and Michael, thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. appreciate you being here. And Rodden Wallace. Ron Wallace is program manager of underground storage tanks with Georgia Environmental Protection Agency. Ron, thanks Thank for joining us. Appreciate it. Also, please welcome Patrick Putman. He's Managing Director with The Private Bank. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Michael. Glad Putman. to be here. Putman, Mr. Putman. Perfect. We got you here. <laughs> <laughs> right. And we're going to get into some deep environmental issues and some kind of winning strategies and some mistakes to avoid. But first, if we could start with quickly some basics. So when you're buying a commercial real estate property, or in some cases, uh, uh, leasing, uh, you want to do some quick environmental studies to, to see what you're buying. So uh, people are... Pro- pretty familiar with a phase one environmental audit. What do you do? How long does it take? What's the, sh- what's the range of the cost? Sure. Um, an environmental phase one, it, it's defined by the ASTM standard, so it, it's got a defined scope of work uh, a consultant has to do on a piece of commercial real estate. And we go out and do detective work and site visits and interviews, and we determine if that piece of property has been impacted with hazardous substances or petroleum products. And again, the thought there is to uh, see if there's the collateral is impaired in any way that a lender would not want to lend money on it, maybe taking on liability of an environmental cleanup, or um, you know, the the environmental conditions at hand may uh, decrease the property value and change how the deal is underwritten. Okay, so so you're doing a site uh, visit, right? That's so right. you're looking around, you're checking records, you're tracing history of uses. That's exactly uh, right. You're checking online sources and 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 all kinds of EPD choice uh, places, right? But you're not actually doing any testing. No, a right. phase one. There's there's no requirement for testing in that standard. Yeah. You just identify uh, potential recognized environmental conditions that have the potential to impact the property with petroleum hydrocarbons or hazardous substances. And phase ones don't uh, uh, test for asbestos, lead-based paint, or mold issues within a building envelope. Those are um, those are non-scope items that would have to be specifically engaged for us to do that during due diligence. Okay. And I guess a lot of purchasers uh, do have you do those as well, right? Indeed. Indeed. Okay. You know, if, if, if a developer is trying to uh, demolish a very large building to put in apartments, he wants to know what his asbestos abatement budget is going to be within his demolition. Okay. Typical cost and time frame? Uh, time frame is two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. And then it range the cost range with properties. But if you've got a half acre property in the green belt, you're looking at plus or minus $1,500. And then the cost scale from there. A large industrial site, maybe in, in uh, uh, the Midwest or, or, or the Northeast, where there's a, a long history of environmental issues associated with the neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, you could be five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. It can scale from there, depending on the history of that area. Okay, so let's say I plan on uh, getting a loan on my property from a from a big bank, and then later I decide the private bank has a better deal. 
uh, can I use that initial environmental audit for whatever bank I'm going to? Yes, as the user of the report, if you, the buyer, engaged a consultant to perform that report, it's just like an appraisal. It's got a, a 12-month shelf life, can be updated within an 18-month period, typically, and um, can transfer to wh whoever the, the lender would be on the deal, as long as we write a reliance language and comply. Pat, with Typically, we're comfortable with, with along the lines of, of Robert's uh, outline, 12 to 18 months, sometimes mm -hmm. 24, uh, depending on the property type. And, and really, if there was nothing uh, terribly concerning found, particularly in the property history, uh, we generally want it recertified to, to us uh, as the, the bank that's going to make the loan. Okay. But you need to know, I guess, who it is and approve who, who's the, who prepared it, right? Well, correct. Absolutely. Because if I did it for you. <laughs> we might be like, yeah, yeah, the, the, the difference between environmental and uh, and uh, real estate appraisals, the FDIC has very extensive and detailed rules on how appraisals are ordered and, and managed. There's a little bit more flexibility on the environmental side. And so generally, if we're comfortable with the environmental firm that prepared it, uh, even if it was originally intended for another lender and it gets recertified to us, we're typically comfortable with that. And Ron, is there anything about phase ones uh, that uh, you get questions about? Not very often. Mostly yeah. we see the phase twos I'm sure we're going to talk about next. Yeah. But phase ones uh, sometimes are sent to us, but uh, and we may evaluate them. But because there's no sampling, no groundwater soil sampling, we really don't spend much time on, okay. on phase ones. All right. So uh, phase one shows there was a service station in its past use or one next door or some issue. Then comes phase two, right? Yes. Yes. What you do is uh, the consultant then determines a... Uh, a suitable testing scope based on a budget and risk tolerance to uh, either test around maybe the tanks associated with the service station if it was on site or test the perimeter of the property um, if you're adjacent to a former service station. And then once we do that analysis, we would put together a report that's typically um, uh, reviewed or stamped by a groundwater professional. And at that point, Ron, it, uh, the regulations allow him to review that documentation. That's correct. The, mm -hmm. the main thing we like to see when we do get a phase two is obviously that it has been stamped in most states by a professional geologist or professional engineer. They take enough samples, not necessarily on the perimeter also, but we like to see enough samples around the tank pit, around the dispenser islands, typically like groundwater samples, because a lot of these properties, they're vacant. It may be very old. We don't even know where the tanks were. So we, want, we rely more on groundwater samples than, than soil samples because of that. I see. And as a lender that gets to phase two, you're like, oh, you're backing off? Or? It, it, uh, on a marginal deal, that might be enough to, uh, to push you off. Uh, mm -hmm. Robert and I worked on a deal a couple of years ago. Uh, suburban office park, uh, mm -hmm. probably 50 years ago, was a, was a farm. Mm -hmm. Drive by, look at it. Everything looks like a nice, shiny suburban office park. Did the phase one indicated that I think it was a battery manufacturer Ooh. sort of uphill. Right. And uh, so, again, felt good about the property, felt good about the, about the borrower. But uh, a little concerned about maybe their, their former neighbors. And so we did step up to a phase two, got a number of um, uh, test uh, drilling done, and uh, we're able to determine that there, there had not been an impact. Uh, so we were comfortable proceeding. Really, I'd say what we ran into on that was a little more time, a little more money. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And what if I do an environmental um, audit? I may say I do a phase one and a phase two, uh, and then I decide not to, to buy the property. And uh, the next buyer comes along, and I just hand them to him. Can he use those? Can he his lender use those? Um, transferable. From, well, from a contract and insurance standpoint, the the next person to use the reports would have to be engaged in, 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 in a contractual agreement with my company, for me to be able to provide the errors and emissions and 
and professional liability insurance on those reports. So there, it depends. If I have a really good client that I'm doing a lot of projects with, we're doing a lot of work, I'm really comfortable with them, they're the next buyer, someone I'd like to develop a relationship with, or you know, just want to progress a deal, I can just issue a reliance letter to that, 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 that unrelated party to me that I, did the, that I didn't do the work for, and they can use the reports. It really, you kind of have to feel it out. How's a lender look at that? Again, a lot of flexibility, a lot of it dri driven back to the firm. I mean, if we're comfortable with the firm that did it and they did it for you, we, we're going to be confident that the quality of work that they did uh, would transfer to us. And we would want the, the uh, reliance letter so that we could rely on the errors and omissions. We would not just uh, take it and stick it in the file. That's right. And what are the typical uh, phase two testing that uh, you end up having to do, Rob? Uh, you, you know, your basic commercial groundwater screen mm -hmm. is three soil borings in a triangle pattern mm -hmm. around whatever condition you identify. Old tanks, maybe an old dry cleaner, maybe where they were uh, recovering lead out of batteries and cracking those. And you started the groundwater table because if that's impacted, you know there's something above it, right? So th that's the screening tool. So if you get three clean groundwater samples, on a property next door to a gas station, you're usually pretty sure there's no impact, right? Typical price range for that? Uh, plus or minus $4,500 for a, what it's called a commercial groundwater screen. In time frame? Um, you can get them done as quickly as, you know, two to three days if the utilities clear quickly. But, you know, a good time period is two to three weeks to, to get a final report out from Did I mention more time and more money? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what about uh, dry cleaners? What do you test in there if the, you see there was a previous uh, dry cleaner there? You're doing volatile organic compounds mm -hmm. and mainly the chlorinated solvents that that dry cleaner would use to clean your clothes, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's a, we, we, at first when we were starting to find all these contaminated dry cleaners, we were saying don't use perk right it's terrible you know it's bad for the environment well all of a sudden all the stuff people were using to clean and clothing that wasn't perk had dirty clothes so people have stuck <laughs> now they're going back to perk because it cleans things you know the best of all the stuff we've used so. yeah and dirty clothes don't work because i go and try to get a loan with the private bank of dirty clothes you, go, you can't even take care of your clothes my <laughs> raise all sorts right. of questions that's right bring well, around the car well, well stay tuned we'll have more on environmental issues this is the commercial real estate show we'll be right back the Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull, your host. Today we're talking about successful environmental strategies. We have Robert Brauner here, Ron Wallace, and Patrick Putman. And guys, you know, when, it, when we have a problem with a phase two or there's some issues coming up, then we get into dealing with the regulators, right? So what, how is the communication with the regulators handled? So if I'm, uh, I've, I'm buying this property and now it's got some issues, uh, it, we need to see if it's reported, how bad is it? Uh, how is that communication handled? Um, well, the consultant would, you know, assemble a, a formalized report mm -hmm. that falls within a regulatory framework of how it can be reviewed, and then we would we would pass it off to Ron to take a look at it and issue uh, a ruling, typically some type of letter <laughs> yeah, or, or, or not a ruling, but <laughs> <laughs> ruling. This is how it's <laughs> right. Be. Yeah. Right. yeah, we would use. Uh, I'm in the underground storage tank program, so mm -hmm. I would use our guidance documents to and the the regulations as to. Um, is it okay? Is it a no further action? Do we need additional work? Do we need additional samples? 
and uh, review it that way. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to risk-based guidance. So let's say your your former gas station property has a drinking water well on property. Well, it's going to be regulated more stringently than if it didn't have a drinking water source on property or maybe a surface water body right. that could be impacted by the problem or the, the gasoline that's leaking into the water table. Yeah, one thing I ask more and more, because we do see a lot of phase twos right now, and one of the things we ask very commonly is, it's not unusual even on old, old gas stations, the tanks have been gone for years, that you will find some levels of contamination still. So that's one of the first questions I ask. Do a water well survey and surface water survey so we know what the risks are if there's no drinking water wells nearby or surface water nearby that we don't think will be impacted, we may be able to give a no further action. So that's, and that's usually outside the, the typical scope of a phase two, but more and more now the consultants, at least in our area, know that if they have contamination, this is something we're going to ask first thing. So you're seeing more testing, you said. Is that more testing? Why are you seeing more testing, do you think? Just the economy's better. You know, a, okay. lot, you know, a lot of people are going after properties that have been sitting there idle for years now. You know, typical gas stations are on, you know, busy corners that somebody right. wants to redevelop. So We see that from the lender's perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly in-town properties mm-hmm. have, uh, have, have increased in uh, in. Uh, desirability and so certainly yeah, sure. properties that uh, certainly over the last several years were more challenging would not have been uh, of interest and now they are yeah right and I guess one thing we're seeing is even some conservative buyers are paying in some cases some pretty low cap rates and high prices so uh, there may be a little more conservative in doing more mm-hmm. testing right 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 especially when you're repurposing a property from a industrial use to a residential use or maybe mm-hmm. from a commercial use to an, uh, to maybe a daycare or something mm-hmm. there's trigger points to a deal you need to pay attention to and I think there's real opportunity for for commercial real estate owners when they they look at these projects that maybe have gotten uh, denied or, or weren't worked through a bank or a lending program if you now look look back at them and see if they have these triggers drinking mm-hmm. water receptor right. Uh, child receptor in the area and they don't well all of a sudden now they become an opportunity right because they've been this property that maybe the the brokers have said oh no one's ever going to touch that it's glowing like chernobyl (laughs) you know well maybe it's not why don't you take another look and see what 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 caused the problem to happen in the first place don't take it at face value yeah and ron what are some of the questions that you get uh from the buying public uh about these uh regulations oh we hear everything um one of the things in, in our program the the responsible party is the t- tank owner, not necessarily the property owner. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of property owners in my libel and we'll say, no, not necessarily that if you weren't the tank owner, it's the tank owner that that has to do the cleanup. And that's one thing we, we warn investors is that if there's no tanks there, you can't be the tank owner. Now you may buy the property, develop it, and then let's say five years later, you get tired of it and want to sell it. Well, if there's still contamination, you may not be able to sell that property. EPD may not be after you because you're not tank owner, but the lender may say, gee, you got contamination still, even though you're not liable. The bank may say, I don't want to give you a new loan or let somebody else buy this. So that's something we get a lot of questions on. Uh, Anything on having, you know, how many samples we need to take. Uh, I've had some phase twos come in where they do one or two soil samples, maybe one groundwater. I said, your property's too big for that few number of samples. You need to do more investigation. So we really can have an idea, especially on old properties where all you're using is old insurance maps, mm-hmm. uh, Sanborn maps to say where the tanks were when you just can't even have any idea where they were. So. Yeah. And I've been in commercial real estate for, uh, I just call it over 30 years now. <laughs> <laughs> of 
quit counting at that point. But I remember back in the day um, that somebody would say, oh, you've got an environmental issue. Boy, everybody just walked away. It was sure. done. All right, oh, right. Yeah. But now there can be some opportunities, right? And because a lot of these environmental issues can be managed. Right? So if you've got less buyer competition because, you know, maybe there was some perk there uh, five years ago or some other contamination, there's ways to manage that, right? That's right. And and I think the, the, the guys that are really taking advantage of those opportunities are seeing urban core, mm-hmm. blighted property. They're putting together a good team. They're putting together a group of, of professionals that understand the story. Mm-hmm. It's a lender that understands how to manage the environmental issues, um, has been to maybe a regulator meeting or two mm-hmm. or met a regulator, talked to one. Uh, it's an appraiser that understands the Brownfield tax credit and how the cleanup costs can be recovered. Uh, it's your attorney who understands the brownfield laws and allows you to buy that property with very limited liability. And it's a consultant that does enough sampling to give you a good liability protection per whatever program you know we try and run that property through. Right. Yeah. And, and we the work, dream team yeah. is what that's. We actually like. work. Yeah, <laughs> and we work very closely with our brownfields program when it comes to UST sites. So we work hand in hand as to. Uh, and a lot of times we'll sit with uh, developers and say, let me see your footprint of what you're planning to build so we know where the contaminants, what, you know, we can come in afterwards after you develop your property, and then let's do the investigation and any environmental cleanup that we need. Yeah. Right, and there's some interesting <clears throat> tools out there that weren't available 10 years ago in that now you're able to parcel off contamination, whereas before, if, it, if the tax parcel was contaminated, the whole thing was contaminated, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, now we can kind of parcel off the the danger zones or the the areas with risk and then have a developable piece of property that doesn't give the Mm -hmm. lender the Mm -hmm. heebie-jeebies at all. And then that's what they use for collateral and then and the deal progresses. And I think another thing is uh, really the intended resale of the property. So uh, something Mm. to be repurposed for residential and you're going to end up needing another buyer at the other end. That's probably going to be held to a higher standard, uh, either carving it out, as as Robert Mm -hmm. mentioned, or or cleaning the property up, as opposed to an industrial uh, property that is going to continue to be an industrial and used. Uh, for manufacturing or other industrial needs, probably less of a less of a uh, standard. And then from there, it's the ongoing monitoring and the future cleanup uh, expenses need to get built into the to the future uh, cost structure of the of the property. And as a lender, do you, do you ever acquire environmental insurance? We we certainly uh, w- would like that when it's available when the consultant um, has done the the work to deliver it. Uh, I mean, certainly the holy grail was the no further action, <laughs> right, but uh, right. the inability to get one does not necessarily mean that uh, that all parties should walk away. Right. And the environmental insurers, they want to see testing. You know, they're, they're insuring a risk. Oh, sure. And when you give them an open-ended, I don't know <laughs> what could be happening, your environmental insurance gets really expensive or it's prohibitive. And then when, if we've done a, a solid soil and groundwater assessment of an old industrial site, the environmental insurers get a little more interested in doing uh, an insurance policy because they, they can put a box around the risk at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. And quickly, what is something that you've seen people insure a risk and uh, really benefit from doing it that way? Uh, you know, I saw an old fire station that had an underground storage tank leak with some oil sitting on the water table that was going to take a while to clean up. But we were able to define how large the plume is was. It didn't impact uh, neighbors. And we were able to put a cost figure on what it was going to take to clean it up. And the, and a policy was issued for a seven-year period on that cleanup window, and it allowed a transaction to progress. Oh, excellent. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more on successful environmental strategies. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. 
Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Realnex, providing a comprehensive suite of powerful commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low cost. Visit Realnex.com. That's R-E-A-L-N-E-X. back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Today we're talking about successful environmental strategies. My guests are Robert Brauner, Ron Wallace, and Patrick Putman. And guys, um, one of the things that, that seems to be coming up now is, is air quality. And it seems to be more important to, to all of us, the air we breathe and the, and the water we drink, right? Is air quality uh, the new asbestos? <laughs> you know, asbestos people were used to be really afraid of asbestos. What 20, 30 right, years right, ago? Right. Now sure. it seems to not be as big a deal. It's not around as much too. So, what about air quality? Well, I think from a risk assessment perspective, va- vapor intrusion is what it's called, and it's when there's been a release of, of volatile compounds or chemicals to the subsurface of a site that readily um, vaporize and get into the breathing air of maybe a retail lease bay that was formerly a dry cleaner. And those regulations have just been uh, published and certified so they're official. And we're all, I think the regulators and the consultants, we're all figuring out how we're gonna manage that issue uh, within you know how we do commercial real estate right yeah and in, in our program uh, vapor intrusion has not been looked at very uh, very closely as when we issue a no further action letter it usually doesn't come into play we're really looking at the soil and groundwater issues and not so much um, the vapors but the the good thing well there's two good things about when it comes to vapor intrusion one is that when it comes to petroleum uh, it's not that big of a problem of the over 10,000 releases we've had in our program. Uh, only a handful, maybe you know, less than 1% have ever had a vapor intrusion issue. And typically when you do have a vapor intrusion issue, it's where you have really high groundwater contamination, very shallow water, or you have actually free product where gasoline is on top of the water. So if you remediate that, get rid of it, knock out the, the, the dissolves and the free product, the vapors will go away. Typically the vapors get into the, the utility trenches and utility lines and get into buildings. When it is an issue, it's a very serious issue, and we've had some in our, our program, but we haven't had any formal guidelines as to how we deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Right. Well, well, it's good to know what vapor intrusion, intrusion is because I thought it was when the guy in the cube came back from lunch uh, and he went to a Mexican restaurant. I thought that, you know, vapor intrusion. Well, so what should I do then if I'm, let's say I'm buying a building uh, and I'm going to have my employees in it, should I do more due diligence than the normal phase one uh, or, or do I only do more vapor intrusion testing if there's phase two issues? I think it's a, it, it depends on the concern. Okay. If you're worried about uh, maybe an old battery manufacturer where it's lead and, mm-hmm. and uh, acidic solutions that don't create a vapor concern, it's something you don't, right. you just, it, it's been addressed with how you assess those compounds. But uh, I would say where it's gonna really affect commercial real estate is, is old dry cleaner releases yeah. that are mm-hmm. sitting underneath oh, these yeah. old retail centers that are either gonna get repurposed um, for maybe a residential project in urban areas or are gonna get released to a new tenant after the dry cleaner's gone. And to Ron's point, when with petroleum, it's less of, of, of an inhalation issue with it making a person sick, mm-hmm. and it's more of an explosion issue where, where the petroleum can't vapors be. can get can't into be. a utility mm-hmm. trench and a spark can set off a, a fire, mm-hmm. right? But the vapor intrusion inside a, a, a former dry cleaner, you know, those chemicals are toxic, they're pretty aggressive. Uh, the chlorinated solvents that are used in dry cleaning can come up through the slab 
and the, the breathing air is in question. And right now we're all trying to figure out what is the problem because what OSHA allows that dry cleaner worker to inhale while they're dry cleaning is about a hundred times, you know, levels a hundred times more than what an environmental cleanup site would allow maybe a residential mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, exposure pathway to, to, to be. Okay, so if I'm testing my building for, say, mold, or I'm testing it for uh, radon, uh, is it going to catch those other vapor intrusion issues? No, it'll just catch the mold or the radon. It okay. won't pick up. <laughs> but to that point, which is interesting, the mitigation you would perform for, let's say, an old dry cleaner release that we're worried about vapors coming from the slab, you, you create a sub-slab depressurization mm -hmm. system. You pull air from underneath the slab before it enters the working space right that would solve a, a radon issue with a property right because you're, you're you would be mitigating radon and the chlorinated solvents right. at the same time so now we know when that southern lady was going oh vapors right? <laughs> that's, that's what she was talking that's right. about she's <laughs> just walking out of her dry cleaner <laughs> how many people are testing for radon these days or does it uh, depend on the area of the country I see it a lot, uh, and we test often in, for uh, HUD-funded, federally-funded residential uh, multifamily projects, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's federal dollars being put to work building apartments and senior facilities, we are required to test the property um, before occupancy and uh, for radon levels above a, a certain uh, standard that's been established by EPA. But that's, that, that's where we're seeing it. We're not seeing a whole lot of radon testing in commercial buildings or or even um, you know I'm trying to high-rise towers it's really driven by residential and how big is mold in commercial real estate today I, you know I think mold was supposed to be the new asbestos and all its consultants <laughs> geared up you know to start you know billing hours and time to, to fix some mold problems but really at the end of the day molds about being a good landlord yeah. if you keep your buildings dry and keep the water out you don't have mold right stay tuned we'll be right back Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Thanks for being with us. Today we're talking about environmental strategies where you can save money and make money and avoid the pitfalls of environmental issues. My guests are Robert Bronner, Ron Wallace, and Patrick Putman. I'm a borrower. I'm going to buy a building, an office building, or a retail property, what have you, and you're going to do the loan for me. So what are your concerns environmentally, and, and what are you asking the borrower to, to really do there? Well, I would say that uh, the, the lender and the borrower are on the same side of the table, ensuring that the property value is not impacted by an environmental concern. So that what the lender pay or what the borrower pays and or the borrower buyer and the lender are all using an accurate figure in terms of what the property is. Uh, is really worth. Yeah, banks have realized they're an investor in the real estate these days. Absolutely. After the last downturn, right? What, we put up 75%, right. you only put up 25%, right? right? So, so. Uh, we certainly all want to make sure we're starting at the same number when we split the 75-25s. Um, and then I would say from there, particularly less so on uh, on uh, retail properties, but particularly on our industrial users, um, they want to have a level set and they want to say, when I bought the property, I was, I was comfortable that it was clean. Some of my manufacturing processes may have the potential to create an environmental concern. And we believe that we've mitigated we the, the borrower believes they've mitigated those um, and so they want to be able to prove that when I bought the property three years ago it was clean I've run a clean shop since then 
And if, they're, if the problems are discovered, they certainly want to have those before they get in and start their processes. And doing a, de- a, a review of a property, when you're looking at soil and groundwater issues, sometimes it gets overlooked operations. You know, things that a, a functioning business that would be doing a business loan uh, within their operations that could stop their revenue flow, right? They, they have a process that gets shut down by the government because it's, it's unsafe or maybe it's a chemical that's being outlawed. And that's what we call an environmental business risk, not a recognized environmental condition. Mm-hmm. And that's more something, uh, an issue that could stop the function of the business due to an environmental issue. Like the guy in the cube coming back from lunch next to me right <laughs> there, there you go there you go that guy and uh what about um now if you're going to foreclose on a property worst case scenario uh it's like you're really now you're buying the property right, right. you're getting a chain of title so what do you do environmentally there if anything then we're going back to what's it worth and so we'll have an appraisal done that gives us a value we'll have the environmental work done that may detract from that value and then we do a cost benefit analysis and uh, does it make sense to continue with the with the foreclosure process, or are we getting into something that is going to have a, a cleanup that would uh, far outstrip what we might get uh, from the foreclosure and uh, return of, of the property? And then we may go a different route on the the uh, property guarantors or the, the borrowers. Um, but again, we just want to make sure that we're not jumping into something that's going to cost more to clean up than uh, the property is worth. And how many lenders did you see when they were going to foreclose on properties actually coming to you and and doing environmental audits? Uh, You know, a lot of them did phase ones when they were going through their foreclosure scenarios where it it was really recession driven. A lot of them, 50%? What's a lot of them? I think the the companies that were buying large tracts of debt that had maybe 80, 100 properties in that tranche, right, were doing phase ones across... They, they would do a, a, a risk analysis, which, I get, which get, ones are scary, and we're going to do it yeah, on that. And I get that, and they came to us, too, for, for valuations uh, on those properties. But uh, how about the bank when they're just foreclosing on, on a property? Do you actually see a lot of the banks doing that? Because I think a lot of the stuff we saw was the banks foreclosing a little bit more haphazardly right. and, and not considering a lot of things like environmental. I, a lot of that went on. Mm-hmm. But it, it really depended on that the, 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 the REO guy at the bank whether or not yeah. he understood environmental and understood those stories you know if he walked up and saw it was a gas station loan he probably wanted to do some type of testing and run it through right. ron's group to see mm-hmm. if it was okay um if if, if it was a clean property in the green belt that always been a farmland, mm-hmm. they probably didn't spend the money. It'd I think highly it, unusual for us to take back a commercial property without doing some level of environmental right. diligence or some staged, maybe, maybe as opposed to a full bore phase one, mm-hmm. maybe Michael, a risk audit, right? Mm-hmm. To where we look at the database, we do a site visit, or sometimes we can even check an aerial and say, Hey, you're probably okay just from a risk perspective, but we but no, we're not doing the full phase one for you. Okay. And then the bankers would decide whether or not they wanted to spend the money to keep moving right. forward, or if they were comfortable with that fairly simple kind of risk audit. Okay, and does a lender that's taken over a property via CID secured debt and they're foreclosing, do they have the same risk as a buyer? buying a property or there's some protection of, of lender liability uh very state to state for sure yeah. but uh, you know some states do have a lender protection where hazardous chemicals as long as the bank if they take title to a property and they don't get into the active operation of mm-hmm. it or or take you know take decision to do a decision tree and make decisions that could create 
the problem become worse, right? Then they're 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 given them they're afforded a lender protection. But I think that varies state to state. I agree, but I think I mean certainly the the uh, there are more protections than there were kind of in the early days yes. of where, where lenders were fully on the hook for anything they took back, and that's that's eased up a good bit. Yes, you know through the, through the regulations because mm-hmm. they didn't operate a a tank system through the hazardous waste regs as long as they don't operate a, a mm. former chemical plant that they're just protecting their security interest and then trying to to move the title forward and then you also have the brownfield program where some lenders and uh, have have put a property through a brownfield program before they foreclosed and took title so that they were afforded all those protections as a clean hands purchaser so in some cases uh, might a lender not want to do extensive testing then so they don't uh, you know, that's a <laughs> well, business risk question. I, I would say that would be unusual because yeah. the, the lender's taking it back. Their intent, we're not in the property owning business. We're going to sell it to somebody else, and the, the next guy is going to ask those questions. So uh, we want to know the answer. Right. We yeah. would ask them that actually in the um, registration, it would still stay in the original owner's name. It would not go in the bank's name mm-hmm. typically. But we would ask that obviously the tanks are, are uh, take all the fuel out and, and clean it out as much as possible. One thing we encourage the uh, the banks to do is to, if there's a Gus Trust Fund, uh, get us all the records so maybe the state can clean it up instead of the bank cleaning it up. We think that's a great idea. I think, yeah. 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 I mean, most states have some kind of a trust fund, so yeah. this is something that banks, instead of just foreclosing, take the, take the property, get the records, show yeah. us that they were in the trust fund, that they paid into it, and uh, the state may be able to take it over and clean it up for you. Okay. Well, that's good news. Yeah. All right. Well, well, stay tuned. We'll have more on environmental issues. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about successful environmental strategies. My guests are Robert Brauner, Ron Wallace, and Patrick Putman. And uh, Patrick, what are some things that, you know, if a buyer's paying all cash for a property, and a lot of buyers are today, unfortunately, sorry about that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, what are some things, they might not do an environmental while they, they should, they might not. What are some things that might surprise people about environmental issues? Well, I would say one thing is they're probably going to have a, a buyer on the other end. And even if they're a cash buyer, that doesn't necessarily mean when they when they turn the property that someone else is. The things that concern us and the reason that we ha- we are very focused on environmental diligence is the the prior user or the prior users of the property as well as the adjacent prior users. So you can look at it today and here's what it's being used at today. It, that feels pretty safe. Mm-hmm. But what was it 20 years ago? And what was the guy up the hill 50 years ago? Those are the things. That, uh, that we want to see in, in the diligence reports. Yeah. Any other surprises that you've seen people kind of, what? You're kidding me? <laughs> we do, well, talking about offsite uh, property owners, we do get phase twos that are adjacent to gas stations, other facilities, mm-hmm. and they're sending in suspect releases. We think this gas station or whatever commercial properties had a release. And we do get that, and where the property owner may not have done anything, and all of a sudden now we'll go to the property, the tank owner, and say, you've got a problem that they didn't think they had because they didn't do any due diligence when they bought the property. That could be a real issue. Right. What are some tips, Robert, for 
picking your team, pick an environmental person, picking everyone you need to, to handle this type of process? Yeah, I think if you're doing environmentally challenged deals, you, you, you first need to know the regulatory framework of, of the region or state you're working in or, or even city. Some, some areas take it down to the county level, how they regulate Right. environmental oh, yeah. cleanups and so you want to know who the players are going to be that are going to give you the green light or the no further action on your deal and then you want to select a team that's familiar with those that process again people that know the story a lender that's done uh, uh, an industrial uh, rehab into residential um, an attorney that's worked a, a local brownfield program or a, or a brownfield issue in that area you're, you're trying to, to do your deal in yeah and is the environmental consultant kind of what you do here in, in the southeast is that the person that might typically quarterback and, and help provide those other dream team members it, it can be you know a lot of times what will happen if a large a, a, the, the bigger concerns it winds up being the environmental attorney Mm-hmm. will wind up quarterback in the project mm-hmm. the smaller transactional stuff maybe the less than a million dollars and mm-hmm. not large adaptive reuse projects with a lot of work and parts will it'll fall back on us and we'll, we'll handle it you know start to finish but again when you get into a big uh, industrial adaptive reuse project we typically work underneath uh, the recommendations and guidance of a, of a a pre-seasoned environmental attorney. Okay. And that's what the lender's looking for. The lender, uh, is, is, even experienced lenders that have been down this path before, still want to make sure that the attorney is, the, the environmental attorney is on board, the consultant's on board, the regulators are on board, and that all the uh, all the te- all the parties that have looked at the property are, are in, in agreement and it's uh, it's worth moving forward on. Okay. That's right. And Ron, what are some sources for listeners and viewers to, to get more information about environmental issues? Obviously, the EPA is a good source, but any of the state regulatory agencies, call you know, call your state reg- agency if your underground storage tank has waste. Whatever program you're dealing with, call and get a contact there. Mm-hmm. You can actually build, you know, uh, people build a relationship with consultants. I know most of the mm-hmm. major consultants that do the underground storage tank in the Atlanta area. Mm-hmm. So over the years, you do have a relationship and that you can work very comfortably with. You can ask questions, find out the details of the problem. And so, would you start yeah. with EPA.gov? And- EPA.gov is a good one where you can go in there and, and go to your, your state and they'll give you a list of the state regulatory agencies. Okay. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, thanks for joining us today on Studio One here in Atlanta. We appreciate you being in. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having us, Michael. Michael. I never knew environmental discussions could be so fun, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess anytime you're involving vapor intrusion, right, there's got to be some some punchlines, right? (laughs) Well, and thank you for joining us out there on the 42 radio stations. Uh, And be sure and join us next week. We're going to talk about the top 10 issues facing real estate in 2015 and 2016. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty Commercial Advisors, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. Realnext, a comprehensive and powerful suite of commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low price. Visit realnext.com. That's R-E-A-L-N-E-X. Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit excelligent.com. That's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T. Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit CommercialSearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREshow.com.